here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Chuck Collins and Josh Hoxson to talk about the racial wealth gap. And we have the news crew, the people you've known for a while. So me, Brittany Clint, and Sam is back. Hey, Sam. Welcome back. Before we get started, the message this week is about telling the people in our lives that matter to us, that they matter to us. That one of the things that I realized is that there are a lot of people who go through life who care so much about other people, who uh, love deeply so many people in their lives, who just never say it, who never show it, who just assume that the other person knows it. And that's just like a not good way to go through life with those assumptions. So my push to you, is there anybody in your life who doesn't know that you love them or who might question whether you love them, but you do? It's like, we got to tell those people that they matter to us. We got to remind them about the joy that they bring in the world and the light that they bring in the world and and just how important they are. And and don't take those things for granted. Well, that's it. Let's go. And here's the news with me, Brittany Pecknett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and a current education professional. Samuel Siangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Siangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram Sam. Yes, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Dere at Dere, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Welcome back, Sam. We missed you. Yes, I didn't do the I, I that time. You're welcome. Yeah, so I'm technically not back yet. I'm my it's my last day in Hong Kong, so I'm staring out on the incredible Hong Kong skyline, and it's a it's a great place. If anybody wants a place to vacation, I definitely recommend Hong Kong. And I'll be back tomorrow. What have you been doing in Hong Kong, Sam? This was your birthday uh, trip. Yeah, so it's uh, birthday. So I turned 28 yesterday, and woo-woo, oh, you make woo-woo. me feel so yes. old. Oh my gosh. And it's also, Ooh. it's also our ten year anniversary. Ten years, a decade. Yep. That is a yep. long relate. That's more. That's longer than I've done anything in my entire life <laughs> besides school. <laughs> that was so shady. Oh my god. <laughs> Why is that shady? That's true. Yeah. Are you moving to Hong Kong, Sam? Sam, you've been bragging on Twitter about how great Hong Kong is. The infrastructure is so yep. great. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's been incredible to see. Like, I mean, the infrastructure is one piece of it, but the whole city is just like futuristic. Is it more futuristic than Wakanda? Oh, no. Ooh. Oh, no. They, they don't have the flying cars here. So that's like once they invent that, then they might have a claim. See, I was trying to get Sam caught. Hey, Clint, Clint, you have also been around the world in like two days. Uh, did you miss Baby J? I did. Uh, Baby J, man, what a kid. He's just he's almost a year old now. He is uh, so Aww. pleasant, um, and he started walking. He's like 
moving. He is taking oh, multiple yay. steps. He he always he's like then he gets too hype and he starts to run and that's when he you know busts his butt. But he's uh, he's he's great. <laughs> he's got his little. These are life lessons. Got though. a little baby fro and, and he's just out here. He's just out here living carefree. Black boy George. Is this is this a teeth phase? They're teeth they're now, teeth, right? There are two teeth on the bottom, and then he has one big old front tooth coming through, and so he's got this kind of. Uh, it's endearing because he's a baby, but like you know, he's just got this one, got just like there's one big on. old tooth popping out of his mouth, and I'm just like, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's cute. a good, it, you know, it's cute because you're 11 months old, but you know, we have to work this out. So one of my favorite streaming shows, Dear White People, recently returned to Netflix for its second season. Pew, pew, pew. Shout out to Dear White People. That is not an ad. Uh, I absolutely love that show. I was super anxious for the, the second season to come back. And there's a cliffhanger in the season finale. And I'm just like... I'm so ready for the third season already. Um, I will not give you any spoilers. I will give one thing away because uh, the most compelling part of the new season for me was actually watching a young black college student decide if she would terminate her pregnancy. Now, I promise no spoilers, so I will not tell you what her decision ends up being. But the show's decision to cover this is actually really groundbreaking, uh, meaningful, and in my opinion, really worth discussion. So here's why it mattered. According to research by Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, with very few exceptions, most TV depictions of abortions center young white women in committed relationships who are not parenting another child or other children already. A majority of these women were depicted as middle class or wealthy. Most of them were in their 30s, and teenagers were disproportionately represented in those plot lines, according to this research. That's the depiction on television. Here's the reality. In 2014, a majority, 60% of abortion patients were in their 20s. No racial group made up the majority, but people of color obtained the procedure at disproportionate rates. Three-fourths of patients were low income, and a majority, 59%, had already had at least one previous birth. Now, here's why this matters. Um, this is often how conversations of importance begin in pop culture. They begin by examining how it affects the most privileged almost exclusively. Uh, it took years, for example, for R. Kelly to come tumbling down, even though a white male reporter and many black women, myself included, have been pushing consumers and companies alike to stop purchasing and promoting his music. This week, Spotify and then Apple Music finally decided to stop promoting him. But this was after months of centering the stories of se the sexual abuse and harassment in entertainment that white women suffered and not the young black women that R. Kelly has allegedly targeted. These imbalances are not only felt emotionally by the most marginalized among us, but they're also felt in the outcomes. We can see the difference in what actually happens in response to these crises. Uh, when we talk about representation in pop culture and societal conversations, conversations. It's not just about inclusion for inclusion's sake. When the pop culture landscape changes, policy changes. We've seen this be true of Time's Up and LGBTQ issues, and lack of access to reproductive health care continues to disproportionately affect women of color and women living in low-income circumstances. Uh, so I'll end with this. A woman named Dr. Jennifer Conti, who is a fellow at the Physicians for Reproductive Health, said this, We continually fail these women in health care access, including 
contraception and abortion care. So it's no wonder that we see these differences. Painting a different picture in the media obscures this reality further and invites ignorant policy changes that do nothing to protect vulnerable women. And you all, that is exactly the point. The personal and pop culture is always, always political. So I think, you know, Brittany, one, I haven't seen the new season yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, Dear White People season one was incredible. The movie was incredible. Actually, are the mo- is the movie connected to the series? Like, is it the same? Like, Yeah, it's the, so it's not all the same actors, but it's the same, like the same guy, Justin Simeon, who created the movie, created the series. Cool. Yeah, so series one was incredible. I think, you know, to your point, the narrative matters, right? The public narrative of who is sort of the popular conception of the person uh, that we're talking about when we talk about social issues, uh, ranging from, you know, abortion to uh, a whole host of social issues that we talk about often animates uh, our policy, you know, response. I think about this issue of, you know, who's on welfare being another one of those examples where for so long, the depiction of who is on welfare was this idea under the Reagan administration of the welfare queen. um, And that was used intentionally to uh, create an environment where people were less likely to support uh, that program and led to some cuts. Uh, And I think about what are the political implications of a narrative uh, around abortion that does not center uh, the people who are most likely to uh, depend upon that service uh, or utilize that service uh, for their reproductive health. And I think you know, I would be interested in, in seeing across the, the range of different issues um, that are sort of the most pressing issues in our society. How does the public narrative differ from uh, the actual people who are disproportionately uh, utilizing those services? Uh, and how does that impact policy? Um, because I think it is something that, you know, as you said, has huge implications uh, in people's lives and in, in the policies and systems and structures that shape them. There are a couple of things that I think of that I hadn't thought of before. So, Brittany, thanks for bringing this. You know, as much as we talk about the media representations of the police and mass incarceration, I just hadn't like really thought about other representations, including representations of abortion. So like that study that you talk about that shows that the people have abortions on TV are disproportionately wider, younger and wealthier than their real life counterparts. Like that's fascinating because it does sort of change the way people think about policy. It changes the way that people think about the issue writ large. What I also found out is that on screen, only 15 percent of characters getting an abortion already have children. When in reality, 61 percent of women who get an abortion are already parenting. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that on TV, the most common reasons a TV character gets an abortion is this idea that it interferes with future opportunities. So on TV, it's depicted as like, you know, a woman wants to advance in her career, enter an abortion, like get an abortion, stuff like that. Whereas what is happening in real life, the data is suggesting that 40 percent that the single biggest driver is actually people not being financially prepared. And like this made me think of just how much public policy and public discourse is actually shaped from the aggregate of media representations of issues. And yeah, I'm still thinking about it, but I thought that was really interesting. And Sam, what you talked about with like welfare, who's on welfare, we think about like who are victims of police violence, like all these things are really shaped and influenced by media representations. And, you know, they t- Team Mom, they talk about Team Mom as having one of the biggest impacts on teen pregnancy. And like you think about just like how mass media shifts the way we think about things that are sort of like you take for granted how complicated they are. I'm really glad all this has been brought up. And it reminds me, um, especially the relationship between uh, 
abortions and socioeconomic status, which I think is a really important thing to be thinking about. And it reminded me of this study from the American Journal of Public Health that talked about how carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term quadrupled the odds that a new mother and her child would live below the federal poverty line. And I thought that this was pretty staggering uh, in, in showing the relationship between poverty and denying a woman her reproductive rights uh, and the right to make her own decisions. And the single most common reason women cite for wanting an abortion is because they cannot afford to raise a child, according to this report. And when so often women are saying very explicitly to lawmakers, this is a decision I am making because I am cognizant of what I am able to offer or not offer this child. And I think this study is just an important reminder for us to be cognizant of the relationship between poverty and uh, reproductive health. I just want to remind folks that being pro-choice doesn't mean that the choice itself is easy um, or that women who choose to terminate a pregnancy do so cavalierly or with cowardice. Uh, Mother's Day really had me thinking about this and had me thinking about how so many women experience life differently. Uh, and for women who have had abortions, it's just really disrespectful to speak of them as though they are callous or cold, uncaring or incapable. Um, just because we women have the right to make the choice doesn't make the choice easy. And the lack of access to make that choice still plagues far too many of us. So my piece of news is about marijuana arrests in New York City. An article came out in the New York Times uh, called Surest Way to Face Marijuana Charges in New York, Be Black or Hispanic. Uh, and you know this is a fascinating analysis. They looked at 911 and 311 calls data uh, throughout New York City to help understand sort of why police uh, were disproportionately likely to arrest uh, black and brown New York City residents for marijuana charges, despite what we know to be true about black, brown, and white communities using marijuana and dealing marijuana at similar rates all across the country. Um, and you know what they find, just for some context, there are about 17,000 marijuana arrests each year in New York City. Uh, that is under the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, uh, who promised to uh, end those marijuana arrests. They have reduced from about 50,000, but they have not ended. Uh, 87% of people arrested for marijuana in New York City are black or Hispanic. And, you know, what is most interesting about the analysis that they do here is that they directly uh, sort of debunk and unpack the police justifications for this and police explanations for these disparities. Uh, so the police, you know, the police have a script. So if you've been following uh, issues of police violence, uh, particularly uh, against black and brown communities, you already know this script. Most people know this script and have heard it before, and that script is that police are more likely to arrest or use force against or uh, even shoot uh, or kill black and brown residents because uh, they are simply responding to uh, dangerous situations and high levels of violent crime uh, in those communities and therefore uh, are merely enforcing uh, the law and responding to the complaints of residents there. And that's sort of the script that you hear again and again and again. You, you won't see an article about racial disparities in policing without hearing some police official or criminologist who used to be a police official use that as their sort of attempted justification for these disparities. Uh, and what the New York Times does uh, is actually look at the data on uh, 311 and 911 calls uh, to police for marijuana possession. And what they find is that even in uh, areas that have similar 
rates of calls uh, about marijuana. Black and brown neighborhoods are much more likely to have police arresting people for marijuana. So police are not merely responding to the call and arresting people at similar rates, uh, regardless of who calls or where they call. They are specifically more likely to arrest uh, black and Hispanic residents in black and Hispanic areas in New York City uh, when police are called. Um, and so, you know, j- this just sort of adds to an, a, a growing body of research that shows that, you know, even when you control for the levels of crime in an area, even when you control for the likelihood that people are to call police for a particular situation, police are still more likely to arrest black and brown people and are more likely, we learned from the Center for Policing Equity research, are more likely to use force against black and brown people during those arrests. Um, so I'll sort of leave that there, but, but I think this is a really powerful way of using data to systematically unpack and debunk uh, the police narrative uh, around so many of these issues, not just for marijuana, but around their uh, justifications for disproportionate policing in black and brown, black and brown areas altogether. I think it's also really important to put this analysis in conversation with the way that we think about recidivism. Um, and so I'm constantly reminded in conversations with folks that people sort of misunderstand what recidivism is and how it operates. And so for those who don't know, recidivism is um, when someone goes back to prison after they prison or jail after they have been released. Um, and that is traditionally one of the metrics that are used. Uh, most often to measure the sort of efficacy of, you know, programs that are meant to keep people out of prison after they've been released back into society. And and I think that sometimes when when people see that someone recidivated um, or that they reoffended, they automatically assume kind of implicitly that they committed a similar crime or a crime that's analogous to what they had done before, right? So if somebody committed a violent crime in in the sort of collective imagination of many Americans, because we don't, we haven't been taught or we don't necessarily have the language to think differently about it, we often think that they are doing something that is similar to what they did before. But instead, oftentimes people are, are violating parole or even probation um, for reasons for for you know again quote unquote crimes that are much. Uh, of a much lower level and lower tier than what they initially were incarcerated for, right? So that you may have been released on parole and and you have, you know, uh, a, a dime bag of marijuana on you um, and and then you end up back in prison and for a much longer sentence because you have violated your parole and, um, and, and it doesn't matter what the nature of the crime was. It's that you violated one of the conditions of your parole. And so I bring that up just because I think sometimes when we see these recidivism numbers, people can say like, oh, man, these people go back into society and they engage in the exact same activities and uh, and, and problems that they were engaged in before. But but oftentimes the things that end up putting people back in prison have to do with mental illness. They have to do with uh, the sort of drug use or abuse that um, that again, many people do all the time and don't find themselves incarcerated for. So uh, I just wanted to bring that to the conversation because I'm continuously reminded that uh, that folks don't always necessarily understand that that's how recidivism works. Yeah, I think it's just a reminder that people are uncomfortable naming racism as racism that Sam, like Sam talked about, you know, people did backflips to try and explain away the disparity in marijuana arrests. So like they did the whole, well, there's more crime there. The neighborhoods are more dangerous and the data will show. And like, 
that just wasn't true. What we knew to be true the whole time was that it was just straight up racism and people won't, people are like nervous about that or people are not even nervous. They just like won't admit the truth. What's interesting about weed is that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined, which is like a fascinating thing to just like sit with. And that we know that blacks and whites use pot at about the same rate. White people, when you look at the data, there's a, a study that just came out from or that came out recently from the ACLU is that uh, white people actually use weed more than black people. But again, but blacks have been nearly four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. And in Iowa, D.C., Minnesota and Illinois, black people are 7.5 to 8.5 times more likely than whites to be arrested. This is not a matter of like who is who is doing what. It's a matter of like who is being policed for doing what. And that these are all choices like we can make a different choice. Over 50 percent of Americans support the legalization of marijuana. So there seems to be something deeper at the root that just like wants to penalize people for engaging in this behavior that we know actually doesn't lead to like, it's unclear there, there are medical downsides. Like it doesn't lead to the impaired judgment that like, you know, alcohol does. So I'm hopeful that this study will help open up space for legalization to take off. And so I just wanted to talk about how there's an exciting new book that's come out um, and it's not, it's actually not very new at all. It's a, it's a book that was written by Zora Neale Hurston, um, who, who if you have not, for some reason beyond anything I'm able to understand, if for some reason you have not read uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, you should pause the podcast uh, and immediately go read that novel because it is uh, one of the most central literary text of of our canon, I think, of the sort of international canon of literature, um, and was so groundbreaking and so important for, for many reasons. But uh, what's interesting about this project is that Zora Neale Hurston, was, she was a novelist, but she was also an anthropologist. And about 60 years after the abolition of slavery, uh, she made this incredible discovery, and she found the last surviving person um, to have been brought on a slave ship to the United States from Africa. Uh, and so she, this is a, a project and a book that she had been working on, uh, but that in the 30s she couldn't find any support for. But it is being published, or it's just been published rather, and it's called Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo. And in the book, she talks about Cujo Lewis, uh, who was born in what is now the West African country of Benin. He was originally named Kasula and was 19 years old when he was brought uh, captured and brought to the United States. And he and about 120 other people were sold into slavery uh, and transferred on ships across the Atlantic. And what's interesting is that even though slavery was legal at this time in the United States, the international slave trade was not. And so this was, you know, and it hadn't been for, for about 50 years, but this shows that uh, slave traders were still engaging in the practice of uh, transporting slaves across the Atlantic for for decades after it had been outlawed and abolished. Um, and, and just generally, I think this is a really interesting and important text. One, because uh, Zora Neale Hurston, true to form, um, tries to capture Cujo's voice and and his his essence in the sort of dialect that he used, which is something that, uh, if you're familiar with the sort of black literary history, is something that she was actually very much castigated for um, by Richard Wright and by others, um, because they thought that when she did that for their eyes were watching God, that she was somehow um, 
making black people look bad by by trying to capture the true essence of of their speech and the the nature of of their dialogue um as compared to to their white counterparts and and Zora fundamentally rejected this she talked about how there was something really special and important about capturing the 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 true nature of of the way that black people spoke and that there was a sort of magic and a music in that that was really essential and and obviously we look back on that uh now in a way that recognizes that she was right. I think many people consider that to be the case, but um, this is on another thing that she uses in this book. And and it's also just a really important thing to to hear the voice of the someone who was actually brought to this country on a slave ship. Um, and I haven't had the pleasure of, of reading the book yet, but but I'm really excited to dig in. I'm so glad that you brought this up. I have been obsessed with Cujo Lewis. I visited his gravesite a couple of weeks ago um, when I was down in Sarah Land, Alabama, which is in Mobile County. Um, so it's very close to um, this burial ground where Cujo Lewis and um, both the other people who came over on the Clotilda, that slave ship, and many of their descendants are buried um, in a place called Africatown. Um, and Africatown was established in 1866 after emancipation when many of the people who either came over on that ship or who were descended of them when they couldn't return back to Africa, they came and created Africatown uh, in Mobile. The modern day fight that Africatown has been continuing to take on uh, is uh, – uh, a study in the convergence of environmental racism, uh, industrialization, and what is often called planned obsolescence, which is essentially people intentionally working to make places like Africatown that was founded by former slaves, that was governed by former slaves, that was run according to their traditions and values and beliefs, um, the work to try to make that place obsolete. So everything from um, a, a, a highway and a bridge that helped uh, that helped make the community obsolete such that many businesses cannot survive there anymore. And so people have to put their tax dollars into the surrounding towns, places actually like Sarah Land, Alabama, where, of course, our sister Shakisha Clemens was assaulted by a police officer in a Waffle House a few weeks ago. But what also happened was that a company called International Paper built a factory very close to that space and the pollution ran off into that space, uh, into Africatown. And so um, researchers concluded that people born after 1945 just seemed to be dying before the age of 65 um, because the ash that spewed from the paper mill was never properly cleaned up and made the residents sick. Unfortunately, this kind of environmental racism is experienced all over the country, but especially in this place that is where Cujo Lewis docked, uh, that is where these uh, formerly in enslaved Africans, now Americans, uh, decided to build their own land and to build their own community. Uh, the fact that it was happening there in particular is a real travesty. I've been posting about Africatown and talking about Africatown every chance that I get. Um, and I think that this book will help not only bring Cujo Lewis's story to the forefront, but also hopefully help people invest in the fight that current residents of Africatown, many of them descendants from the people who came over on the Clotilda, 
um, are, are taking on every single day. Also, if you are in Mobile, there is a restaurant, Black-owned, called Kazula, one of the few Black-owned places uh, in downtown Mobile that I go to every time now that I've gone down there a, a couple of times. These kinds of things cast a long shadow. And the shadow right now is that Africatown is still fighting for itself, is still fighting for its life, is still fighting for its, its existence. So Cujo Lewis is an important part of history, and I'm hoping that as you learn more about him, that we will each do what we can to support that fight that Africatown is continuing to take on. The public narrative needs to catch up with the historical reality, which is that uh, these types of things that we talk about did not actually end, you know, magically uh, in one year. They began to be phased out, and we need to start asking questions about, you know, to what extent have they been fully phased out, or if they have not, what remnants of those uh, issues continue to this day that we need to abolish. Now, I'll just add uh, that this reminds me of the importance of first-person narratives. So, like, what happens when there's a whole set of people who aren't allowed to read and write, who aren't taught to read and write, that, like, history just forgets their stories. So you get all these sort of retellings of slavery and that entire period that are from observers and from sort of well-meaning abolitionists and from religious texts. And that you actually just don't have like a huge cadre of first person narratives about like what people experienced. And, and that's such a loss for anybody trying to uncover the truth. And it's a reminder of like the seemingly basic things like literacy and education that like they have an importance in terms of how people interact with the world today. But they have a huge importance about how we remember this time in the future and that's one of the things that this, like everything everybody else said, I co co-sign. It makes sense. It's great. It's right. And I'm just like reminded of like what happens both here and across the world where like you think about the genocide that's happening in countries, or like the human rights violations and like in and what happens when people don't don't have access to like write about it and tell that story that that's one of the ways that oppression works by always being able to manage the narrative. So you get a story like this to break through. And it's a reminder of what Sam said about the recency of this. It's a reminder what Brittany said about how this is functioning in real time and, and what Clint said about how these stories sort of work as levers of power. Okay, uh, my news is about phone calls and phone call tracking. So Securus is one of the largest prison phone call companies in the country. But I'm not going to talk about that today because we had a whole episode on prison phone calls. But what is interesting is that Securus actually offers another feature that has nothing to do with prisons per se that allows law enforcement and correction officers to pinpoint almost exact locations of any cell phone in the country. So there's this one scenario where a woman, she was sentenced to drug rehab. She left the center, but she was eventually located using this service. And there was another example where a missing Alzheimer's patient was found. And then there was another case where a detective was looking for a murder suspect, and they got within 42 feet of this person's, this is the suspect's location. The question is like, how did we get here? So what I didn't know is that the phone companies sell the ability to acquire location data to all types of companies, mostly for marketing purposes, like providing coupons when someone's near business or services like roadside assistance or bank protection. But the agreements that those companies sign are like not, they're like papered thin. So Securus like played the game well, and they offer this service to law enforcement where they can literally just track people's cell phones 
without a warrant, without following any sort of legal restrictions. And another thing I didn't think about with this is that Lee Petro, who's one of the lawyers that we had on early to talk about prison phone calls, is that what he was saying about this is that they're worried that the prisons are actually going to start to try and locate the people that inmates talk to on the phone. Cause like they'll have their, they'll know their phone numbers. And like, that's just a frightening world where like unchecked by any sort of legal precedent, no law that some private company can literally find to like the foot, like where you are in the world real time at any place is wild. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild, and it's especially wild when you think of it in combination with all of the other sort of police technologies that are beginning to be used. And so one of those is predictive policing. So so we talked about how crime data, you know, often is biased uh, because it just reflects the police uh, understanding of crime or crimes that are reported. It often uh, disproportionately um, involves black and brown people, uh, you know, beyond with the scope of uh, actual crimes committed. And I think when you think about the fact that now not only is, are there police predictive policing algorithms that can deploy police officers to particular locations uh, based on this flawed data, but now they can also track people's cell phones uh, to find people uh, in these locations, uh, find them, you know, apprehend them based on a, an entire sort of data collection apparatus that doesn't have much public input. So when police departments adopt these new technologies, uh, or as, as you said, DeRay, begin to get access from these companies to cell phone location data, um, there's not like a referendum held. You know, the city council usually doesn't vote on it. The mayor doesn't vote on it. Uh, it's just something that happens behind the scenes in, in terms of their contracts. And yet this has so much to do with uh, how people, in, in, particularly in black and brown communities, experience policing now and how that policing is being uh, expanded and becoming even more intrusive. Uh, so we have to have a conversation about what types of rules and regulations and protections uh, and privacy protections should people have uh, from this type of stuff. I know that there uh, are a couple of uh, bills that have been introduced in city councils. Uh, there's one in California. There's another that has been introduced, I believe, in New Jersey to like, require some level of public input before uh, these types of technologies are adopted. But it, it is a, a huge sort of new frontier in uh, over-policing and police violence that needs to be addressed that is often uh, unspoken about. Frankly, the whole thing is scary to me, especially when I read in the article that you sent to Ray, um, that the police do this by going through a system typically used by marketers and other companies to get location data from major cell phone carriers, including AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon, um, which is basically all of the major cell phone carriers. And I'm reading that and I'm like, how did they get that information in the first place? Oh, I'm very sure it's by those terms and conditions that we don't read, but we just sign. Why? Because the companies know that we need their products. Like they're, they don't actually have the onus to change how they're operating and the kind of uh, information that they access and the kind of information and the ways in which they use that information because they know we're going to sign that darn document. Even if we read the entire thing, we're still going to sign it because we still need that cell phone. We still need to be able to be in touch with our friends and family. We still need the the internet access, et cetera. Uh, and so, I, you know, the whole thing up and down from the company level to the police level really bothers me and makes me deeply worried about the direction that we're moving in um, in regards to our privacy because we have less and less and less of it every single day and every single day we find out just how much of it we signed away without even knowing it. That's the news. 
Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Here we go with Chuck Collins and Josh Hoxson on the Racial Wealth Gap. Chuck and Josh, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to Save the People. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Now, I first came across your work because I was obsessed with the study The Road to Zero. And, you know, as much as I thought I knew about the wealth gap, I think that I actually knew about the wage gap. And I would say that that is true of many people, that five for 15 was about income and about wages. Um, and that became a national conversation. I didn't realize that I didn't really understand the wealth gap. So I'll start with, you know, how do you think about the difference between income and wealth? And like, how have you helped people just see that difference in a way that made sense to them? Well, I think that one of the things we've we try to point out is income is important. It tells uh, the story of kind of what's happening in the present, what what's happening in terms of people's income and flow, the flow of money into their lives and the flow out. Uh, but when uh, we, we often overlook wealth, uh, defined as what you own minus what you owe, and how important wealth is uh, to people's sense of security and well-being and savings and financial investments. And what, what Josh and I have been trying to point out a lot is wealth is where the past shows up in the present. It's where you sort of see the multi-generational forces on someone's life. Uh, so you may see a research study that says, look, the, the, the income gap or the racial income gap is narrowing, uh, but the racial wealth gap is widening. And to, to us, that is a more meaningful indicator of just kind of people's well-being and security. How does that happen, though? What most people would say is that, like, if the income gap is closing, then, like, then the wealth gap should also be closing. How does it work that they are operating in two different directions? What's happening is that as people generate income, you know, it's assumed that they're generating wealth at a similar rate, and they're not. And the reasons for that are multitude. First of all, black houses don't appreciate at the same rate that white houses do. Second of all, the return on investment for people investing in their own lives, which is to say putting money into education, you know, reducing their student debt, things of that nature, that doesn't generate the same return to a black family that it does to a white family. And folks like Tom Shapiro at Brandeis University have studied this in depth, showing that if you compare black and white families over a long period of time, having more income does not mean more wealth. And a lot of that comes back to what Chuck said previously, which is that basically intergenerational transfers of wealth show up in a lot of different ways, and they're not often talked about. And I, I experience this all the time, where people are really hiding how much intergenerational privilege they have, and that privilege in this country is most often skewed along racial lines. That's interesting. When you say they're hiding it, what does that look like? Like, what does that mean? 
Right. So this is the most common way I hear this is is folks, you know, usually when people transfer wealth, it happens in a few different times. It happens when they graduate high school or when they graduate college or when they go to get married or when they have a kid, like major life events. And what I see is this stories that replicate themselves. And I, I first heard about it from, from Professor Shapiro at Brandeis, and I've since watched it play out over and over and over again. Here's how it goes. And I suspect you and a lot of people listening have heard the same story. You know, people say, oh, you know, I saved, I bought a house, you know, where we had to save up. We were, um, you know, pinching our pennies. We were driving for Uber. We were working extra shifts. We were, had a yard sale, so on and so forth. And, you know, by the way, my parents gave us $30,000. And it's like, wait a right. second, how did you do that again? <laughs> and, you know, I, and it, what it does is it reinforces this, this narrative that if you work hard, you can get ahead and you can afford things. And the reality is, you know, I live in the city of Boston, which is one of the most expensive cities in the country and really in the world. And what I'm witnessing is it's near impossible for anyone working anywhere near the median income to save up for the runaway housing costs in this city. So it's completely disingenuous to say, like, oh, I got there on my own. It's not to say you didn't work hard. It's to say that in intergenerational transfers of wealth or, or inherited advantage helped along the way. And I think the first step to solving the racial wealth divide is acknowledging that fact, people acknowledging that... You know, it's not that I, there's anything wrong with me as a person. I just got some help. And if I don't acknowledge that help, it's hurting other people. It's actually actively hurting somebody else who's looking in the mirror and wondering why they can't do what I did when what I did required something that they that I was born with. Now, The Road to Zero is what, is what first sort of put me on to the work that you were doing specifically, both of you around the racial wealth gap. I don't want to give away the top line of the, the Road to Zero, so I will ask you to tell us what the, the conclusions of the study were. Right. So what we did in the study was we looked back at the last 30 years of trends in household wealth. So from 1983 to 2013 was the most straightforward data set from the Federal Reserve. And what we did was project that same trend line into the future. So what if we did nothing in exactly the last 30 years projected into the next 30 years? And what we found was that black and Latino wealth is trending downward and white wealth is trending upward. So the, so the main line, you know, by 2053, so in a, in a few short decades, black wealth will hit zero. Two decades later, Latino wealth will hit zero. Um, and in that time, we're going to become a majority-minority country, which is to say that white people will no longer make up uh, over 50% of the population. Among the youth, that's already happening, and as a full population, we'll see it. So that's that's the unaddressed, just let things go on as they've been going. Like, I was trying to understand the difference between Hispanic wealth and black wealth. Like, how do you account for the differences in the rate at which it is changing? I mean, distinctions um, between, you know, Latino and, and black families is, is a little bit complex. What it basically comes down to is partially this question of long-term impact of things like slavery, things like when folks migrated to this country, um, how communities have been able to generate wealth, you know, through entrepreneurship. Latinos have a much higher rate of entrepreneurship than any other demographic um, so there, there's some sort of micro stories within, you know, the, the black-white gap. And then, you know, there's the much more amalgamous question of, like, do black families experience 
race-based discrimination at a higher level, you know, the long-term impact of redlining, which we can talk about, um, like is the, and I don't have the academic answer to that question. I can just point out that the experience of oppressed people across demographics is dramatically different for different populations. So it's not to say that, you know, all people of color have experienced the same type of oppression in the United States. It's just to say that, you know, there are obvious and distinct differences between these groups. I have one thought, which is I think the the legacy of racism in relation to housing and home ownership has sort of played out historically differently. Um, so, you know, after World War II, uh, you really did have it, you know this this sort of deep systemic discrimination in mortgage lending. It it also affected Latino households, particularly like in in the you know the Chicano populations in the Southwest. But white families got on the the wealth building express train, and Families of color, primarily systemically African-American families, were barred from access to mortgages, which actually pushed people into kind of the predatory, you know, people wanted to own a home, and they ended up getting these, you know, contract for deed mortgages, which, you know, you miss a payment, you miss, you lose all your equity. So they were kind of almost like wealth extracting, wealth stripping lending arrangements. So... That's where you saw this dynamic of accelerating advantage for white families and sort of compounding disadvantage or or even wealth extraction for households of color. And then the least the most recent chapter, two thousand eight, you know, the economic meltdown leading up to that, we know that uh, African American communities were again systemically targeted for these predatory loans, which accounts for the fact that you know so black wealth was disproportionately in home ownership and was, uh, you know, millions of people lost their home equity. Um, And white families were more diversified in their wealth. So they owned homes, but they also had savings and investments and they were able to bounce back. So that's the most recent chapter of why things have have played out the way they have. Now, uh, most of the research that I've seen sort of talks about home ownership is like the single biggest asset that people have and contributing to their to their wealth. Is, is that true? And I, so that's one. The second thing is that when I talk to people and just ask them sort of like what they think closes the gap, they always say like an investment in K-12. Like they're like, if we invest in education, like that'll be the single biggest opportunity driver and the opportunity leads to wealth creation. Like what would you say about that? So two things. Is housing actually as big of a factor as people think it is? And then, like, what about education? Housing is important to get sort of on the wealth-building ladder, if you will. You know, people save up, uh, purchase a home. That's at least a way to hold value, hopefully build equity. Um, so, but what you see is once fa- once people get the stability of home ownership, then they move on to other forms of savings, other forms of investing. So, again, uh, you know, the percentage of, say, black wealth, which is in home ownership or home equity, is much higher than white families, which have much more home equity and and leave much greater inheritances to their to the next generation. So I think home ownership is a really important step. I mean, if we had a, a policy in this country that just had really good, permanently affordable housing where you only had to pay twenty percent of your income and you could, you know, it was it was good quality housing. I think we wouldn't have to be so dependent on home ownership. People could just save money and have decent lives and decent housing. But given that we have this huge, large, mostly private sector housing market, that's um, – and maybe Josh, speak to the education th- question. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we can understate the impact of quality 
education, both pre-K and, and K through 12. I mean, it can be a transformational experience for millions of families, and it is. Um, public education, you know, was a radical concept when it was first introduced in the United States um, centuries ago, and now, you know, can play an equality effect. Uh, one of the, our findings from the report it simply points out that uh, high school diploma, a white household holding a high school diploma, so where the head of household is white and holds a high school diploma, they have the same level of wealth as black and Latino families who have an advanced degree. So just getting more black families through high quality uh, K through 12, what the, you know, looking back has shown is that actually not only is that not enough to get to grow wealth in black communities, getting through college does not create parity. And a recent, uh, you know, just made famous by the New York Times study shows that uh, even higher income, uh, once you've like been born into higher income as a black family, you're still struggling to get to the level that white um, children born into black families are when they're adults. So, you know, the problem is systemic and, and Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton have written extensively about this problem where, you know, essentially we think that education is a panacea. And it's not to say that education isn't critically important, incredibly important. It's just to say that having a very high uh, quality and quantity of folks getting, um, you know, education has not moved the needle previously. It is not to say that it couldn't. It's to say that, like, other forms of oppression have taken hold that strip people of their wealth and and halt people from being able to generate the kind of wealth that people not experiencing those types of oppression don't have to experience. What people also say to me is like, you know, this it's a suggestion that like that black people just save their money more and like invested it differently, that they'd be able to build wealth. Like that is something I've heard more than I thought I'd hear. What's your reaction to that? You know, I think that we have to just the the sort of individual responsibility story is the counter narrative to that. So here we have, you know, let's let's just be clear. White households have 86 times more wealth. The median wealth of a white household is 86 times more than a black household, 68 times more than a Latino household. That cannot be explained by a difference in individual effort, you know, postponing gratification, all the stuff that you hear. But people project these sort of simplistic stories of individual effort. Uh, I call it the myth of deservedness, which is everybody's where they're supposed to be because that's where they deserve to be. That's like the bumper sticker in our culture. And uh, so, yeah, if you if somebody has vast wealth, it's because that's where they deserve to be. They get up early in the morning. They're entrepreneurial. They built a better mousetrap, whatever. And the shadow side of that story is if somebody doesn't have wealth or security, then that's where they deserve to be because there's something wrong with them. And so I feel like that, you know, oh, well, if people just save their money uh, is part of that narrative. Yeah, we all, I mean, I, we all need to, you know, think about how to budget better. What is it we really need? Maybe we should cut down on our credit card expenses. I mean, personally, I can say that. Uh, we all make choices, but... Is this just a simplistic morality play? That's what that's what's missing is like if you, you know, if your wages are low, you can't save. If you're if you have parents that you're taking care of or members of your extended family that need your help, 
it's hard to save. Uh, in fact, it's inhumane to save when people have these enormous needs in front of you. So I think that little line just sticks in my cry, I have to say personally. What is reparations to you and what could it look like in practice? Well, I mean, to your, to your last point, what you're, what you're basically describing when you talk about people saying, you know, black people should really save more and that would solve the racial wealth divide, you're basically describing a personal problem to a systemic or a personal solution to a systemic problem. And, you know, we need a systemic solution to a systemic problem, which is how reparations enter the discussion. I mean, if the problem of the growing economic divide that we, you know, point out every different facet of on inequality.org day in and day out and talk endlessly and research endlessly about, if that could be solved by just a tweak in people's spending and saving habits, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been persisting so greatly. Maybe we wouldn't have the greatest level of wealth inequality since the 1920s that we're facing right now. Unfortunately, this is a problem that's been created over decades mostly driven by public policy and will require a different public policy to solve. So reparations, and a lot of people have written about reparations, like Sandy Darity has a book coming out soon about reparations, and and Chuck has an article just out uh, this past year in Courts on like a serious take on reparations. Reparations, what people often think about when they think about reparations is a big check, and for a lot of racist white folks, what they think about is like, you know, young black kids are going to go out and buy new shoes or buy fancy rims in their car. You know, there's just this racist image of what that looks like. I mean, where it's at in Congress right now is a bill that's perennially introduced to just study what reparations can look like. That's how far back Congress is from compared to the rest of the public. Congress isn't even ready to discuss what reparations would look like in practice. They can't even agree to just study the the actual uh, example of why we might need it and what it what it could mean. Um, so to talk about reparations in in practical terms is kind of refreshing, you know. I think compared to where the public discourse has been, and I think folks like Tanahasi Coates and others have driven that discussion forward in a way that we haven't been able to previously. Yeah, I think that we're we're we until we acknowledge the debt, what, what Randall Robinson called the debt in his book, the debt. Uh, then we are, uh, particularly white America, is sort of in a state of arrested development. We're continuing to kind of live through this false mythology of deservedness. Um, but I think it's helpful to look at, for instance, we, we did have reparations. Ronald Reagan signed a, a reparations bill providing reparations to the descendants of uh, Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. And that took the form of both uh, payments, cash payments, but also took the form of, in, you know, uh, at least uh, originally the intention was sort of cultural institutions. Uh, I think the the reparations after World War II uh, for uh, Germans, Germans of, and Jews of German heritage uh, continues to both be in the form of financial support. In fact, I was, I was actually speaking at a, a workshop on white advantage, and a, a white woman raised her hand. She says, I'm a recipient of uh, – I'm a beneficiary of reparations – uh, my grandparents uh, were, were fled the Holocaust, and I continue to get uh, free college education payments as a result of that. So it can take it can take uh, many many forms. You know, if 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 millions of people were excluded from owning a home, uh, excluded from these public programs like Farmers Home, Veterans Administration, uh, FHA mortgage insurance, let's provide those excluded 
with the same package that was provided. You know, what kind of house could you buy with a 1% 40-year fixed-rate mortgage uh, and with the down payment assistance? Uh, you know, so that you, you could have wealth-building initiatives that were make them available in the same way to those who had been systemically excluded from them. Uh, same with like matching funds for wealth savings accounts, that sort of thing. Cool. Well, thank you both. I consider you both friends of the pod, and we'll have you back to keep us updated on what's happening. Thank you, DeRay. This has been great. Yeah. Terrific to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Positive the People. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcasts, and I will see you back here next week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.